when the International Criminal Court makes eye contact with an Israeli, that is anti-Semitism. That's a joke to say that because then they'll say, oh, they you misreported. <laughs> Guys, I'm a comedian, so I will occasionally be making jokes on the podcast. And yeah, then as a lawyer, she will- I will be limiting our liability. <laughs> I wrote a script. Really? Yeah, because I'm a lawyer and I'm a freak. Oh, I thought you and... meant like a, like a screenplay. No, 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 no. I mean like a- I was like, weird time to pitch, but let's go. <laughs> what do you got? Welcome to the very first episode of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine and bring you stories commentary and interviews with the aim of spreading awareness about the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. Yeah, that was much better when you did it. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody. My name is Mikey B. Uh, you may know me as Michael Scherzer or Mikey Intifada if you're Hasbara. My name is Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl. And for this very first episode, we wanted to introduce ourselves to you, our viewers, and share with you what drove us to create this space, this podcast. Tell me about yourself and how you got into, well, you're obviously Palestinian, but tell me how you got into activism. Well, I mean, being Palestinian, I'm obviously, uh, you know, since a very young age, I've been acutely aware that my family had gone through something uh, that led to our removal from our homeland and uh, in particular, our inability to go back. And, you know, at the same time, the, the food that we ate at home and, you know, the Arabic dialect that we spoke at home and, you know, the embroidered dresses, um, you know, that we would be gifted for holidays, all of that was Palestinian. But yet this place, Palestine, we were away from it and, you know, there was no plan to go back, um, not because we didn't want to, but simply because we were not allowed to. And so I became curious to learn that story, um, you know, our personal story and why we couldn't go back. And I came to learn, um, you know, that it was because part of our homeland was under a very brutal military occupation and the rest of it um, had been turned into a state that would not allow us to go back to our homes because we were not Jewish. Um, and if we go back in time to about 100 years ago, my great grandmother and her family were from the city of Yaffa. And in the 1920s, they moved to Gaza. Um, and at the time, these two cities were Palestine, right? So today, Yaffa is considered Israel. Um, and of course, Gaza is its own separate, you know, fragmented entity. But at the time, it was all Palestine. And, you know, there's only about 40 miles that separate the two cities, but, you know, they could not be more different from one another mm. today in their conditions. Yes. Um, and so my grandparents were born and grew up in Gaza, all four of them. And as a result of the creation of the state of Israel, um, on top of the majority of historic Palestine, large numbers of Palestinian refugees were pushed out of, of their cities, um, which became Israel. And uh, many of them were pushed down into Gaza, but of course also the West Bank and neighboring Arab countries. And large you know, swaths of Gazan farmland was also taken and eventually became part of Israel. 
Um, and, uh, you know, around the 50s or so, the, the situation in Gaza was, was pretty difficult, my grandfather tells me. Um, and eventually my grandparents settled in Kuwait uh, in 1955, and they were never allowed to go back to Gaza. Um, but also living in Kuwait, they were never allowed to become citizens. So my parents were born stateless, which is a very common feature of the Palestinian story. This is not at all a unique situation. In fact, you know, many millions of Palestinians today remain stateless. And um, I too was born stateless in Kuwait. And so, um, you know, there was this notion of, okay, well, so I guess we'll just live here as long as they let us live here, right? And we'll be stateless. And, and that's, you know, what the plan was. But then in 1990, following the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, we had to flee Kuwait. And so here we are made refugees once again. Um, and that's how we ended up in the US. And I ended up growing up in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, and so when I look back on my own personal story in the last few you know, generations, I see that it's one that's marked by displacement and statelessness and forced exile. Um, and I think to say that this affected me is really an understatement because actually the entire outcome of my life was fundamentally altered because of the creation of the state of Israel on top of Palestine. And, you know, the same goes for the other 13 million Palestinians in the world. Um, and as I mentioned, we are the world's largest refugee population. And so um, I think it was a combination of a lot of things, you know, my personal story, but also just this feeling of being like really profoundly disturbed by all forms of injustice and then feeling, you know, a human responsibility to speak out against injustice, um, but also a very unique and personal responsibility as a Palestinian American who had this space and who had a voice in a country that was very specifically responsible for what was taking place in Palestine. And, and for those of our listeners who don't know, the U.S. gives Israel every year 3.8 or so billion dollars um, in, in aid. Israel is the world's largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid. And um, the latest aid package, the $38 billion aid package over 10 years was actually signed by the Obama administration. Um, the United States frequently and, and, and almost without fail um, shields Israel from any form of criticism, whether it be in the United Nations by exercising its veto power when it can, um, or uh, you know, just on the world stage more generally, when the and International also, Criminal Court recently yes, came out yes. and said that they were thinking about investigating Israel for war crimes, which everybody knows they're guilty of, the United States did pretty much everything but throw actual bodies in front of the investigation. Several U.S. officials have come out with statements condemning, you know, the, the investigation by the ICC, the idea that the ICC would have jurisdiction. And that, that was the, the specific ruling is that the ICC has jurisdiction to investigate war crimes in the occupied territories. So in the West Bank, Gaza and uh, Jerusalem um, and, you know, Israel and its supporters immediately came out condemning this decision. You know, Netanyahu called it 
fake war crimes, I think was the term he used. And he accused everybody of anti-Semitism for. He said you know, when the International <laughs> Criminal Court makes eye contact with an Israeli, that is anti-Semitism. That's a joke. That's not what he said. <laughs> we have to say that because then they'll say, oh, they you misreported. Um, you know, they'll say that oh, you yeah, made yeah. something up. <laughs> Guys, I'm a comedian, so I will occasionally be making jokes on the podcast. And then as a lawyer, she will be letting people know that they are jokes. I'll be correcting you and I I will be limiting our liability (laughs) for defamatory statements. And that is why we work well together. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, so that's, I mean, that's the thing is like, you know, I'm just a human that's disturbed by injustice. And I see that I have a unique role being Palestinian, but being American um, to address that injustice. And so I feel like I have to do whatever I can to try to remedy that. When I was in college. I was also making these connections between militarism and imperialism. And I was really involved um, in the anti-war groups at my university. So I was constantly organizing rallies, speaking at rallies, protesting the U.S. led wars on Afghanistan and Iraq and and making the connection between that militarism and also U.S. support for Israel. So that for me was, you know, really essential. And I mean, also like reading also at the time, Noam Chomsky, Norman Finkelstein, Ilan Pape, Rashid Khalidi, obviously Edward Said. Edward um, Said, The Question of Palestine. Yeah. So, I mean, these were the books that really formed my sort of, you know, awareness of the issue, like between the age of 18 to 22. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your experience? I am Jewish. You probably could tell if you have eyes. I grew up in a pro-Israel house. So I was indoctrinated at a young age and taught to just support Israel without really questioning it, without really understanding what that meant, like understanding the gravity of throwing your support behind the nation state of Israel. And it was only until I got to college that I really started to be in a position where I could question that narrative. Um, I'd never heard anything about Palestine. I'd never heard anything about Palestinians. I'd never heard of the perspective that Palestinians were ethnically cleansed. None of that had entered my lexicon until one time I got to college and I was uh, walking from a class on campus and I saw this huge display, right? Yeah. Uh, Israel is an apartheid. And I was like, really? You know, like I wasn't upset. I was just confused because it was new information. Israel Um, is is an apartheid state. Yeah. Israel is an apartheid state. Never heard that before. I knew South Africa was an apartheid, knew it was bad, knew we weren't supposed to support apartheid. And so it was the first time in my life that I had come across two contradictory ideologies that, you know, ostensibly were the same state, nation state. Yeah, because you had never heard of Israel being described as an apartheid state. You wouldn't even know what that would mean because you had never heard of Palestinians. Exactly. Um, The only thing I knew about Palestinians is that It would be popular to mock their suffering if like if they were mentioned, it would be popular to mock their suffering when when they started, like when they were introduced, they were introduced as a like an evil character, you know, almost like like a villain in a movie. Um, They never explained any reasoning behind anything 
the Palestinians would be doing, any context of what had happened on the land. Basically, they just told me that it was a land with no people for a people with no land. And when you're talking about they, who are you referring to? Like where the Zionists, the Zionist brainwash machine, whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? But was this coming from your family or was this coming? So it had infiltrated a lot of avenues of my life. Uh, It was in Hebrew school. It was in my family. It was in media. And, um, you know, I initially started to conflate Judaism with Zionism because nobody had told me that there was a rich history of Jewish anti-Zionism, right? Over a hundred years. It's not just Palestinian culture that the Zionists will erase, right? They erase Jewish history that goes against the support for the nation state of Israel. Now, it should be said, the state of Israel is not the same thing as Eretz Israel, right? People who are making those two things the same, do not understand the history, the context, the culture. You know what I mean? Nowhere in the Bible or the Torah does it mention a terrorist nation state that would be created in 1948. Right, right. That's a stretch. That's an interpretive stretch. What we have today- justifies settler colonialism through a religious misuse, a misuse of religion. Absolutely. So dangerous because it creates a situation where people are associating Jews with the state of Israel, right? That's anti-Semitism. Anyways, so I grew up in this household where I had never heard the other side really. And if I did hear the other side, it was only to mock the pain and suffering that existed for them. But there was at least an acknowledgement that we had a pain and suffering. Not really, honestly. Not even. More like whatever they're doing is futile and... It was in the same, I recognized it later upon reflection as the same type of delegitimization and dehumanization that exists with the Native Americans in the United yeah. States. Um, you know, and as a settler colonialist in the United States, I was I was acutely aware that like my family came here from another place generations ago, right? Set up shop in Brooklyn and then migrated all the way out west. Right. Originally, my family comes from like Lithuania and Poland. We go back multiple generations. I have the lineage. Grew up with that knowledge of a Jewish history and a respect for Jewish culture. Uh, My dad was not super into religion when I was growing up because he had been forced to go to Hebrew school and temple and uh, have a bar mitzvah and all of the things. You know, he was sort of pushed into it and didn't love it as much. My mom really did love religion. She wanted to have a bat mitzvah, but it wasn't at the time when they were giving bat mitzvahs to girls. So she just learned a bunch about Judaism and kept going with the traditions. She continues to celebrate the high holidays type of, you know, understanding of the culture we come from. And I didn't really like Hebrew school. The lady kept yelling at me all the time. It was super rude. Were you a good student? No, but that doesn't matter, right? Like, (laughs) I wasn't very interested in learning Hebrew. It didn't seem super relevant to my daily life. I wanted to play basketball with my friends. So in Hebrew school, you learned what? You you learned the Hebrew language. I learned the alphabet. I learned how... You read from the Torah. read, Read from the Torah, exactly. And then you have classes on Jewish history. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds a lot like Islamic school, but we learn Arabic. 
memorize the Quran and learn Islamic history. And I learned my Torah portion and then I had my bar mitzvah and it was fun. I, you know, I had a great time. I remember it was a big deal among my friends and those memories, they still stick with me today. Um, I have a fond spot for Judaism in my life. That said, I do not support Zionism at all anymore. Uh, In fact, I am ardently opposed to Zionism. And I think that Zionism has done harm not only to Palestinians, but also to Judaism. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're touching on is leads us right into why we wanted to do this podcast. Yeah. Because there's this feeling that now in, you know, 2021, we are at a very pivotal moment um, in history. A turning point. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, there's this sort of duality at play in the public discourse. So on the one hand, there are these increasing attempts to silence and suppress advocacy for Palestinian rights. Um, But at the same time, I feel like more and more people are becoming aware of the reality of the situation and that certain of the tired cliches that we were sort of accustomed to hearing before, like, oh, Israel's the only democracy in the Middle East, they are proving to be completely irreconcilable with the facts on the ground. And it's happening in a public way that, um, you know, it's not just me saying this, but now you have Israeli organizations that are saying this, that are that are prominent. You have other Jewish American organizations that are evolving on the issue. And I think that's what's really important. So when you're talking about this sort of, you know, evolution that you've had, I'm kind of um, also thinking about some of the recent events that have taken place. So for example, the Beit Salem report, Beit Salem, of course, is the leading Israeli human rights organization, which a few weeks ago came out and concluded for the first time um, in in their 30 year history that Israel is an apartheid regime. Um, And, you know, this again is is a departure, is a shift from the work that they used to do previously, which was focused primarily on just documenting the human rights abuses of Israel in the occupied territory. So they were limiting themselves to the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. But now, you know, they've come out and just said exactly what is happening on the ground. They've come out and said that in the entire area between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, the Israeli regime implements laws and practices and state violence, which is designed to cement the supremacy of one group, Jews, over another, Palestinians. What did you know about Israel growing up? Not much. Uh, I knew that there were people that were trying to get me there every year and they were like, don't you want to go to birthright? Don't you want to go to birthright? And I was like, hey, y'all may have a mistake because I was born in New York. You know what I mean? I don't know what you're talking about, (laughs) but I went to college and got engaged in activism and then like just came across Palestinian people. Right. And started to hear a totally different perspective than what I'd heard my whole life, a perspective that had been deliberately left out, right? So that I wouldn't feel any sort of compassion or any sort of historical understanding of the context of the land um, or the people, its inhabitants, native people, et cetera. Through hearing Palestinian stories, through doing research on my own. So I checked it out and turns out they were right. You know, and uh, wow. Jimmy Carter agreed. Uh, you yeah. know, Desmond Desmond Tutu agreed. 
Yes. Uh, Nelson Mandela and his granddaughter agree. Yeah. Um, and then this rabbi recently wrote an article. Um, he's from South Africa and he agrees. And so it's like it's extremely hard to continue to deny the fact that it's an apartheid regime. That said, yeah. I did an about face for Palestine in about two months where after that interaction, I started going to those protests and supporting those people. Wow. And, you know, my college university professors would often spread pro-Israel propaganda misinformation, and then nobody would press them in class. Nobody would push back on their narrative or right. question the information. And I was just looking around and seeing how Palestinians were literally being erased in real time. And I was paying for that education yeah. and it, it did not sit well with me. Uh, so I pushed back. I was the only person who was pushing back on behalf of Palestinians. It's like a really radical change in like not a lot of time. No, but it was also like pushed and accelerated by my own experience with my Jewish fraternity. I'm yeah. a member or I was a member of a pie before they gave me the boot. You know what I mean? Okay. Uh, <laughs> shouts to them. They still send me emails asking for money. No. Okay. No, thanks. Right. Yeah. We're going to, yeah. I think y'all are doing okay on money. Yeah. I'd imagine. Well, um, you can say that. <laughs> I, I can't say that. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I, that was a test. <laughs> that was a test and you passed. You and I passed. To, I'm not an anti You were not supposed to you. enjoy that joke. And now Thank everybody you. knows. You want to tell us a little bit about your experiences in the fraternity? What it, what, what that was like? And fraternity was pretty wild because we actually had some guys who had served in the IDF in the fraternity living in the house with us. Right. So I lived with guys who served in the IDF. And I remember a time when I thought that that was an admirable thing to do, right? right? I remember because I'd been indoctrinated into thinking that anybody who serves in the army of Israel is a moral army and right. is doing a noble deed. They call themselves the most moral army in the world which is not at all uh, an oxymoron, right? A moral army. Yeah. What does that even mean? I, I like, don't know what that means. At its core. And it's, it's like nonsensical. More, more moral than like the army of New Zealand. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> who are we comparing it against? Exactly. So I lived with IDF soldiers, former IDF soldiers, and they actually broke down a lot of their psychology, a lot of the tactics that they right. use for both mental and physical warfare, yeah. which was a weird insight, to be honest with you, because I was not super comfortable knowing that information, right? They kind of thrust it upon me. And that's probably because they themselves are traumatized. I'm not wow. super sympathetic to them, but they probably needed space to talk about it. Right. That said, they laid out the entire playbook about how they delegitimize and undermine Palestinian activists by painting them as anti-Semitic, often staging events, creating negative press, pressuring businesses to close down, condemn, cutting off supply chains. You know what I mean? Like they right. will put the full court press on you 
which you've seen if you're watching this food bender situation, which right. is happening in Toronto. Shouts out to my friend Kim at Food Benders. Yeah. The Zionists are putting the absolute full court press on her. And, um, you know, they do that regularly. Yeah. They also told me about how they spy on Palestinians, how Palestinians have no basic freedom, how any message can be intercepted and then used against Palestinians for the benefit of the Israeli army. And right. I was like, that like blackmail, sounds... essentially. Yeah, exactly. It is called yeah. blackmail legally. Uh, you're the lawyer, right? Uh, you're the lawyer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I'm the Jew. You're the lawyer. That yes. sounds like blackmail. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we can both agree. <laughs> yes, yes. 100%. But I mean, so this they, stuff has been reported, right? I mean, you, numerous times. you don't have to look very far. I mean, you know, all you have to do is Google, does the Israeli army engage in blackmail of Palestinians? Does the Israeli army spy on Palestinians? I mean, Israel is the leading exporter of spyware to the mm -hmm. entire world, right? Absolutely. And, 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 and all sorts of surveillance software and the latest technologies, they're exporting um, uh, technology to China, which is being used to spy on the Uyghur uh, population. So, I mean, this is not anything that is surprising if you're paying attention. Not only that, the father of Ghislaine Maxwell yes. is a Mossad spy, former Mossad spy, they murdered yes. him, whatever. Yes. Um, Ghislaine Maxwell, obviously, sex trafficker, terrible person, Jeffrey Epstein's right-hand woman. Awful. Yes. She has two sisters. Her two sisters work in technology and they work in Silicon Valley. I'm talking Google. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the main organizations and they are developing spyware technology. Wow. They are like very actively engaged in those projects. Yeah. So anyways... You could Google Unit 8200, find out more about it. You know what I mean? But yeah. I found out about it from guys while taking Jaeger bombs. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it was just a very strange experience for Surreal. me. Because it, it was literally at the same time that I was walking on campus and saw the Palestinian demonstration, right? So yeah. it sort of all happened like a perfect storm to change the way that I thought about it. And I started listening to other Jews who were anti-Zionist. So I started listening to. Noam yeah. Who Chomsky. were some of, who were some of the, the scholars that you read, the, the authors, the historians that you learned from just so if any of the listeners want to start educating themselves, who can they reach out to and who can, whose sources can they look into? I started reading Noam 100%. Chomsky. <laughs> yeah. uh, and me then... too. I mean, Noam Chomsky radicalized me when I was 18 years old. That's really, that was the start of my political journey. As well as uh, Norman Finkelstein. Yes. And Norman Finkelstein's radicalization himself radicalized me, right? Yes. I watched that speech where he was confronted by people talking about the Holocaust. Yes. And he said, you know, I don't like to pull this card, but both of my parents died in the Holocaust. And, you know, or like he literally said every member on both <laughs> sides of my family was exterminated. Yeah. And so, you know, that that idea of crocodile tears, yes. the, the fake tears that people cry, uh, it really struck home with me because I'd seen a lot of the weaponization of anti-Semitism. Just the usage of the Holocaust in a way that I didn't feel super comfortable with. I didn't feel like right. it honored the Holocaust. I didn't feel like it re recognized the contemporary injustices that are going on. 
both in Israel and in the United States, started reading, you know, like Malcolm X is one of my huge inspirations, Asada Shakur. I also took an interest in the Black Panther Party. I saw the parallels between the Black Panthers and the Palestinians. Yeah. And I looked deeper and found that Huey Newton himself was a huge advocate for Palestinian liberation. Palestinian liberation has been linked with the Black Liberation Movement. Yes. And, you know, Angela Davis has expressed support for Palestine. I was pretty active in the uprisings against the police in Los Angeles. And that also inspired me to start doing new different types of activism that are mutual aid based and help oppressed communities. I started fundraising in the past couple of months. I fundraised about $20,000 for hot meals for Gaza. That's amazing. A woman, a woman named Miss Naja. She's a refugee herself from Rafa, and she works at a kitchen. She created this kitchen that serves mutual aid meals to other refugees inside of Gaza. And I was so inspired by the fact that she herself is a refugee, but she's still helping. She's still creating a community and feeding people. And so we raised $20,000 for that. Um, which is about 9,000 hot meals. That's in amazing. Addition, oh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, I'm very proud of it. And I'm super uh, just and grateful the, uh, for yeah. the, like the platform, like that everybody was available to do it. The, the infrastructure of Rebuilding Alliance, everybody should check out Rebuilding Alliance on Instagram. They have an infrastructure where you can donate to existing causes, right? Just spotlight existing causes that are either near their goal or, you know, just getting started and you can boost them. And um, it makes a difference, right? They posted a video a couple of days later where she was reacting to the fact that they got all this money and it touched my heart in such a pure and like emotional way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're, we're doing the same thing with like Kim and her food vendors, legal defense. We raised $10,000 in the last two That's days. That's amazing. Basically, I became like an influencer for justice after the police uprising. That's the best kind of influencer to be. And I also read, yeah. I read The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Yes, right? and that, that changed my perspective entirely to the point where I realized what had happened. Yes. Right. I had the clarity that, oh, OK, so my parents and grandparents grew up traumatized from the Holocaust and that led to the creation of this nation state on top of an already indigenous people. Yeah, I recognized it. I was like, oh, we were lied to and they used our trauma. Um, and yep. so I wasn't even like mad with my parents. I've, I've really grown from a place of compassion because initially I was kind of mad. I was like, y'all got me supporting this terrorist state, making me look dumb. But I was also fiercely anti-imperialist in the United States, right? Yep. I knew that what we were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, Pakistan and, you know, all, all of them was wrong. I knew it. And so it wasn't so much of a leap for me to be like, maybe Israel is not beyond reproach, right? Maybe Israel is kind of doing some bad things, actually. Yeah. And I went from that to Israel is a terrorist apartheid state. I feel like some of your remarks are, re are reminding me of when Seth Rogen was on the Mark Maron show. Totally. This well, summer. 
And the he- the headline was, you know, Seth Rogen comes out and says, I was fed a huge bunch of lies about Israel. Um, you know, and he was like, yeah. you know, they never tell you that. They never tell you that there were people there. And they never. make it sound like it was just empty. And, uh, and I think, you know, this idea that people have these sort of awakenings and they realize that perhaps there is a different story and that that story was intentionally concealed um, for a very specific reason, right? Um, but it's, it's really nice to be able to hear about that growth. And I think one thing that, you know, is underlying all of that is at your core, you cared about humanity and you cared about truth. Like those are probably your principles. So if you're coming at it from a perspective of, I care about humanity and I care about finding out the truth, well, then you will find out about Palestinians. You will find out that we are a people that has been ethnically cleansed from our homeland. And that for the last hundred years, we have been fighting settler colonialism in our land and that we make up the world's largest refugee population. We are 13 million Palestinians in the world and around 8 million of us are refugees. And all of that is because of the creation of a state on top of our land that intentionally excludes us from it. We are not allowed to go back to Palestine because we are not Jewish. There are Jews who were born in New Jersey who can get citizenship. But someone- Someone who was born in Ramallah cannot go back today. Yeah. Or Jerusalem, right? Anywhere, yeah. Or Yaffa or whatever, right? And so the idea that the place where my grandfather was born or my grandmother was born, I can't go back there because I am being prevented from going back there by another state. It, it creates this unique situation in refugee law. Most refugees are refugees because they could go back, but it's dangerous to go back, right? You know, like the country would allow them to go back, but they face, you know, war or there's some risk of persecution that is unique to them that makes it dangerous for them to go back. In our case, we're all willing and we want to go back, but we're not allowed to go back because the state that has been constructed on our very land is preventing us from doing so. And it has really essentially prevented us from doing so since its inception. I mean, Palestinian refugees were supposed to make their way back to Palestine after the Nakba in 1948. And ever since the establishment of the creation, uh, the establishment of the state of Israel, Israel has made it impossible for us to do do so. And they started enacting very quickly, various measures, various laws that, that slowly but surely made it impossible for us to go back. Um, And this extended beyond the territory of just Israel proper. We also, you know, Palestinians who were made refugees from the the areas which were occupied in 1967, the West Bank and Gaza, and were expelled from those territories also can't go back to those territories. So it's just this. Clusterfuck. It's a messy situation where, you know, when you look at the map today, right, what I call historic Palestine, historic Palestine what, what am I referring to? It's the piece of land that existed before 1948, okay, which today is comprised of Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, right? This is historic Palestine. And you can see very clearly just by the visuals of the map when you look at it, that there is this state that has inserted itself in the middle of Palestinians. 
It's like there's Palestinians right. here. There's Palestinians here. There's also Palestinians in Israel. They didn't expel all of us. About 15 to 20 percent of the Palestinian population remained on the land that became Israel. And eventually, after many decades, they were given Israeli nationality, but they are still subject to second class citizenship today. They but won't call you, them Palestinians, though. They, they call won't. them Israeli Arabs. They're called, they'll call them Arabs. And they do that intentionally because they want yes. to make us sound like this amorphous blob of Arabs. Like we could come from anywhere. We come from here. We come from there. No, they're Palestinian because they yes. were we're all Palestinian from this land. And so it's like you have Palestinians on one side, on the other side, and in the middle. And it's very clear that what has happened is that the state has sort of imposed itself in a way that, it, that doesn't make sense with the demographics of the land. And it continues to prevent the, inhabit the former inhabitants of that land from returning to their homes. Um, so it's, it's a very messed up situation. And we don't often have this conversation. When we engage in discussions about Palestine, we'll talk about the occupied territories. We'll talk about what happened in 1967. We'll talk about the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. In recent years, we talk about, for example, oh, the siege on Gaza. We treat Gaza like it's this humanitarian crisis that we just don't understand why it's like this. Gaza is put under a very intentional military blockade that could be yes. solved in a day if Israel wanted to. It would just have to open the border and allow Gazans to export their products and import products. Yes. But this is by design, right? This is by design. And it's illegal and it's immoral. And we know that they have they are caging 2 million Palestinians in Gaza right now, making their lives completely unbearable. The UN said that by 220, Gaza would be uninhabitable. 95% of the water is undrinkable. The, 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 the unemployment rate in Gaza is the amongst the highest in the world. I think it's something at like 40%. They ration the UN, food, water. Yes. They, they, have, they have lists of banned items. Spices are on that list. Chocolate's on that list. Uh, tea is on that list. Amira Hass did some great reporting initially when the blockade started. She's an Israeli journalist. And she wrote about the, the banned items, the, the items that Israel bans from entry into Gaza for security reasons. And you'll see very clearly that these items pose absolutely no security threat to Israel. The only intention in banning these items is to collectively punish 2 million people. For what, right? And so when I saw that, I started learning about that. And I'm somebody who's familiar with the history of World War II. It started to seem very similar to what had happened in the Warsaw Ghetto, yeah. right? Where Jews were compacted into a dense space, forced to live in terrible conditions, uh, rationed food and water, uh, medicine, etc. And I was like, oh, my God, that is happening right now. The same thing yeah. is happening right now. And so I went from being somebody who was just, you know, outspoken and showed up showing up to protest and donating to somebody who started causing a ruckus. Yeah. Right. Somebody who was every day waking up, seeing how the Palestinians were being harmed by the Israeli apartheid regime and trying to make a dent in it, trying to at least expose it or provide some type of comfort to some people who were harmed by it. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, what's the goal, right? The goal is equal rights. It's so simple. It's, I mean, it could not be more simple. The goal is for equal rights for Palestinians on their land. The goal is not to kick out Israeli Jews and make everyone go back to, you know, Europe or where their grandparents came from. This is not the goal. The goal is not They always to, say, if I may, I'm sorry to interrupt it. you. Yeah, no, they always say, oh, oh, all the Jews will end up in the sea. And it's like, where are all the Palestinians? Look around you, right? They live the amongst that, you. 
The ones that are there are being treated terribly. The ones that are not there, the millions that are not there, were kicked out. Yeah. The thing, the thing that you're afraid of. Right. That's you that's, already did it to us. Exactly. They always say, oh, they're gonna wipe Israel off the map. And it's like you literally that's what you literally did to us. And that's why there's eight million Palestinian refugees in the world. And I mean, it's nobody, like it's like we're being gaslit. Hundred percent. It's like we're being gaslit. Like we can't even speak about our experience. We can't even say, "Hi, this happened to me," you know. Yep. And I think that's for me. That's that's really the impetus in having these conversations. It's like we need to create this space, and the more spaces that there are, the better. You know, this is. There's a lot of other people doing podcasts. There's a lot of people, obviously, you know, on YouTube and speaking out and and. I encourage all of it because the more the more spaces that we have memorializing Palestinian stories and experiences, the better because we're creating a public record, right? Yes. The generation of Palestinians who survived the Nakba now are, you know, very old, and it's important for us to do our part to essentially capture their stories and their legacies. We have a so duty that, to yeah, document absolutely. it for the future. Yeah, absolutely. In the same and, way that I'm able to watch footage of Jews who survive concentration camps, it is important for Palestinians to be able to watch footage of Palestinians who survived the Nakba. Yes, that and displacement thereafter, because the idea is the Nakba is not this singular event that happened in 1948 only. No, we are living, it's never stopped. Exactly. We are living an ongoing Nakba. And for those of you that don't know, the, the Nakba is an Arabic word for catastrophe. And it really refers to the ongoing continued uh, expulsion, displacement, dispossession of Palestinians from their homes. And it is continuing until this day. I mean, it seems like every day I open, you know, my browser and I see a new article about Palestinian families that had their houses demolished in East Jerusalem because the Israeli army came by today and expelled an additional dozen families or so. I mean, it's and ongoing. then on top of that, there are settlements that were approved, right? Absolutely. So they, they demolish the house and then build 900 new settlements. You For know what Jewish I mean? It's people like on Palestinian land. So it's a very continuous process of ethnic cleansing that we have been living and we have been resisting it. And for those of us like myself who are, you know, on the outside um, being forced into exile, we also have this really unique position because we're able to speak out and we have platforms and, you know, we're in the U.S. or in Europe. And I think it's really important for us to use our voices I know that that's one of my primary motivations. Like I I feel this immense responsibility as a Palestinian American, as a lawyer, as an activist, as somebody who is genuinely disturbed by all forms of injustice. I mean, this is, it's who I am. And I care about equality, right? Equal rights. It's so simple. Don't treat people differently. Don't discriminate. Give people equal rights. Like if you want to know what the answer is and how you can have peace, you have peace by treating people the same, giving them equal protection under the law, giving them citizenship and full yeah. civil, economic, political rights. What if locking them in cages and subjecting them to psychological torture wasn't the best solution? Exactly. You know what I mean? What if we did something different? Yeah. Like we don't need to like go to like 87 million rounds of negotiations over like 40 billion years. Like it's just, it's so simple and it's staring at you right in the face. And, you know, like the end of apartheid, 
I mean, these things get to a boiling point. They get to a point where, you know, the point of no return, where at some point it just becomes so unsustainable to continue to say that everything is fine. No, no problem. Keep it moving. No problems here. And, you know, it just, it gets to a point where you just have to make a change. To the people who are, <laughs> will, will be like, oh, the Palestinians have had so many opportunities to have peace and they've never accepted it. The David Ben-Gurion once said that if he was a young Arab man, he would take up arms against the state of Israel. Yes. So I don't think y'all are being real with yourself. Anybody who is living in his house and one day wakes up and has to leave his house because somebody else is coming to move into it is going to understandably be very upset. Yeah. And it's not because we're anti-Semitic, it's because we were expelled from our homes. I hate that I have to break it down like this, but it's so simple. We just wanna go back to our homes. And this idea that Judaism and Zionism are one in the same is actual anti-Semitism, right? Because yeah. if Jews, if random Jews represent the state of Israel, then justifiably you could attack random Jews all over the world because you're upset at the policies of the nation state of Israel. But a ton of us don't support Israel, right? A ton of us are not super comfortable with the way that Israel is using Judaism to oppress Palestinians. There are many Jews who support Palestine. There are many Jews who tacitly support Israel, but they disapprove of the crimes, whatever cognitive dissonance that is, the white moderates. The idea that Judaism and Zionism are, are the same thing is anti-Semitism. And anybody who applies that logic is applying the same logic as the Yemeni creator who went around asking random Jews to say free Palestine. Oh, it's yeah. literally the exact same thing yeah, for a... A Jewish person to assume that I support Israel. And if I don't, then they call me a self-hating Jew, right? Yeah. Why would I hate Jews? Is it because you're assuming all Jews support Israel? That's the common through line. The way that Zionist Jews bully non-Zionist Jews, it creates a culture where everybody thinks that Jews support Israel, right? They're not disconnected. How can we expect other people from other communities not to make the assumptions that are being perpetuated in our own community. If we can't keep our own community in check when it comes to differentiating Zionism and Judaism, we're expecting Palestinians who've been ethnically cleansed by the state to do it. Yeah, I feel like we need to have a full episode on the distinction between Zionism and Judaism because there's a lot of headlines and developments in this area, especially, you know, formal attempts to conflate the two and obviously reactions to those attempts. So I feel like we need to go into that in a whole episode on oh, Israelis are always talking about, oh, self-defense, self-defense, but they never think about like, what about Palestinians right to self-defense? Do Palestinians have that right? And they'll always be like, no, 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 no. Anybody from Palestine does anything violent, that's terrorism. Right. right. That's that's terrible. When in actuality, I mean, under international law as an occupied people, we have a legal right to, to struggle. Resist. The UN said so. Yeah, we have a legal right to resist under international law. But I and even if the UN didn't say so, you have a moral right. Yes. Right. Like if somebody comes into your home and tries to take you your things or harm you as a person, you are allowed to defend yourself, right? Yeah. Especially if they want to move into your home and kick you out of it and also you know, build multiple homes on top of your home. Or like tell you that you can live in like the bathroom and like the pantry, but they get everything else. 
Yeah, and you can't use the water between certain hours. You have to pay four times more for the water than they do, and they get a pool, and you don't. Yeah. Also, no medical visits for you, no doctor. So and they're going like, to put yeah. a checkpoint in, in your living room. Make sure yeah. that you're, you know, your papers are right. Hey, where have we heard, have, can I see your papers before? Yeah. I'm just curious. You know what I mean? Yeah. As a Jew, I forget. Oh, no, I don't. You know what I mean? Like, okay. This is a situation which Beit Salem has said can only be described as apartheid. And of course, this comes on the heels of the 2018 nation state law in Israel, which declared that only Jews have the right to self-determination. So right. if you look at this finding, this is, I mean, this is really groundbreaking to see this from, from Beit Salem. Um, they've come out and said that Israel is a Jewish supremacist state. And I think this is a discourse that will, um, will matter to Americans paying attention to the issue because we are now acutely aware of issues like white supremacy. And we have this sort of awareness uh, on the need to pursue racial and social justice and in a way that we perhaps were not aware before. Um, and I'm also reminded of the 2019 uh, statement by Jewish Voices for Peace um, opposing Zionism. I mean, before their platform was, was very sympathetic to Zionism. And in 2019, they came out and said, look, Zionism is a dangerous settler colonial movement for Jews because it continues yeah. to hurt Palestinians and steal Palestinian land. And I think there's this, there's this awareness that is, that, is, that is happening because these groups are, are assessing the situation for what it is. If you just look at the facts, if you look at the disparity in power, in treatment, in, in, in rights, you cannot but conclude that Israel discriminates against Palestinians because it does so by definition. Not only that, but that discrimination now with the nation state law has been elevated to sort of a constitutional principle, which will now pave the way for even more laws in the future that are going to discriminate against Palestinians. So you're seeing kind of this shift amongst Jewish American organizations, amongst Israeli organizations. And of course, these are just to name a few. There are definitely others, and I hope we'll cover them in a future episode on the podcast. And of course, we're also seeing the shifts happening in pop culture. Like I mentioned earlier, um, the statement we had this summer from Seth Rogen. Yeah. And then there was the SNL skit from a couple of weeks ago. And what happened to Bella Hadid? Yes, exactly. On Instagram, the, 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 the censorship of her father's passport photo. I put out a video on that. There's a lot going on. Yeah. And I think this sort of informational revolution, this enlightenment that's happening dare i say is the same process that i went through and now it's just happening on a macro level right people are becoming exposed to information that they had not previously been you know privy to and it is changing their perspectives whether it's yeah. jewish voice for peace whether it's beth salem and i mean it's not like those people were the first people to say israel no. is an apartheid state right as Absolutely not. Earlier. We've been saying it forever. Palestinians yeah. and allies have been saying it forever. We have been screaming it from mountaintops. You know, right. this idea that, you know, Palestinians have been organizing for their rights for 100 years now. I mean, the first boycotts were in the, you know, the, in the 1930s against Zionism. Right? And now they're just being heard for the first time, really, on a national stage. Isn't that wild that it took over 100 years yeah. of true suffering, organizing and strategizing before there was 
even some semblance of a voice for Palestinians in the mainstream narrative. What does that say? It means that the mainstream narrative has been crowded, has been populated, dare I say, manipulated by a PR machine that, you know, conflates Judaism with Zionism, which is anti-Semitism in and of itself, and then uses that uh, tool of weaponized anti-Semitism to shut down legitimate organizing for equal rights. We've tried everything. We've tried armed struggle. We've tried boycotts. We've tried, um, you know, advocacy in, in the United States. We've tried absolutely everything. We've tried negotiations. You can't say we haven't tried negotiations, you know. Every it's like, like that reporter dis- recently. He was like, where do the Palestinians go? Where do yes, they go? I saw that. Clip. Where do they go? Because the answer for Israel and the United States is absolutely nowhere. Yes, that was We're in keeping response, it 100%. That was in response to the U.S. position that the Palestinians should not go before the International Criminal Court. So when we try international law, we're told, no, you can't do it here. When we try boycotts, we're told, no, you can't do it here. You know, when we try any form of organizing protests, you know, uh, speeches at universities, we're told, no, you can't have that speech. You know, they cancel our Zoom lectures. They, they try to suppress... Um, our voices in all sorts of venues. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, what do you want us to do? How do Where we is their file space? a legitimate complaint for the very real discrimination and unequal treatment that Palestinians face? Where do we go? And Easy. I think the answer, the answer is that they want you to have nowhere to go, right? That's the point. They want, the Zionists want Palestinians to have literally no outlet so that they can just continue to oppress and steal land and murder people and sexually assault people. Oh, I know. Well, go to Israeli military court where the rate of conviction for Palestinian protesters is what, 99.9% or something? That's like an actual statistic. And that is if you are lucky enough to get a trial as opposed to just being shucked into a jail cell for being of age, I guess, being 15 years old. You know what I mean? Yes. Allegedly throwing rocks. There's literally no basis for the reason that people are jailed for multiple years without trial, right? Yes. Israel a has a lot of people thousands. don't realize, but Palestinians can be held in Israeli military prisons without ever going to trial in a um, system called administrative detention, six month sentences, which can be renewed indefinitely. Just for the record, something that the Nazi regime did as well. People don't realize that, but they put a lot of Jews in jail for their political beliefs. They murdered Jews with guns before they murdered them in extermination camps. People only want to talk about the Holocaust in the context of the concentration camps and then forget everything that led up to that. Did did they start in concentration camps? You know what I mean? It it really bugs me that people compartmentalize the Holocaust in such a way that they use it to justify the current oppression of Palestinians. And if you were at all honoring our ancestors as Jews, you would be standing up for the Palestinians right now. My my grandmother, who just recently passed away, before she passed away, she told me she knew what Israel was doing was wrong. She said she went there in the 90s and that there was, there was so much promise, right? She believed that there was a possibility for coexistence. She reconsidered. 
right? She knew that it's a bad place and what they're doing to the Palestinians is bad. If you are willing to accept what is factual, it's the only conclusion you can draw. But if you're willing to live in this, you know, fake reality where Zionism only means the self-determination of Jews, nothing to do with Palestinians, where, where is the self-determination happening? At whose expense? Right? Even cultural Zionism requires a Jewish state, right? Which is inherently prejudice. You are creating a tiered system of existence. If you say it's a Jewish state, which they have, by the way, BB said it's a state for the Jews. If you it's listen to law. them, they'll tell you. It's Israeli law. It's, it's on the books that it's a state for Jewish people and that only Jews have self-determination. That is actually what we're missing from a lot of the, the, the public discourse surrounding this equivalence, this presumed equivalence between Zionism and Judaism is what does Zionism mean to Palestinians? Right. Zionism for Palestinians means expulsion and dispossession. It means that we must be removed from our homeland. We have to be because Zionism is the belief that Jewish people and only Jewish people should be allowed to live in land that is inhabited by people who are also Muslim and Christian and who were a majority in that land until Zionists expelled them from that land. And in order to maintain Zionist project, we as Palestinians need to continue to be expelled from that land. That's what Zionism means for a Palestinian. So we have to judge Zionism by the very real consequences that it has produced in the project that has now existed for 73 years, the Zionist right. project, the state of Israel, which was created on the basis of the Zionist project. We have to judge it for its results. And its results are 8 million Palestinian refugees. That's the results. Those are the consequences of Zionism. Constant human rights abuses, an apartheid system that has created generations of trauma. That's the result. That's what it means. I think this podcast is important because there is a real camaraderie between Palestinians and Jews. Um, also, Palestinian Jews exist. So let's not forget them. But it's there's something that's so interesting to me that... Like I learned about Palestinian culture and I learned that you all have such a great sense of humor, right? And I think that that sense of humor comes from trauma a lot in the same way that Jewish people have a sense of humor that comes from trauma. And I just think that that's such an interesting shared bond. And, I'm, you know, it's sad to me that Zionist Jews are the reason that Palestinians have that trauma. But we have more in common than we, we have think. We have far yeah. more in common than many people believe. And it's not a religious yeah. dispute. No, it's not. I mean, in fact, Palestinians who were historically, you know, majority Muslim, but also Christian and also Jewish um, lived and coexisted on this land of historic Palestine for centuries in peace. And in fact, my grandfather um, told me that when he was growing up, the house next door were, you know, Palestinian Christians. And on the other side, there were Palestinian Jews and our family's Palestinian Muslim. And they all had the same culture and spoke the same language and ate the same food. And because they all grew, you know, up on this land and had been for generations. And so naturally, of course, culturally, the identity was the same. And of course, they had yeah. different religious observances and beliefs, but um, that didn't, you know, make them not live well together right and that is so important to note because everybody wants to make it a religious 
thing, right? It's not a religious thing. Religions were coexisting in peace before Zionism. And then Zionism introduced the ideology of settler colonialism and supremacy and created an environment that was uninhabitable for other religions, right? We're seeing that even churches are being attacked um, in addition to all of the terrible Islamophobia that exists. Yeah. No other religion is safe unless you're Jewish. And that is not at all what being Jewish is about, right? Do not kill, do not steal. So basic, you know, so basic. Yeah, I I knew immediately that they were not upholding Jewish law. Yeah, because Jewish law does not say set up a checkpoint in the West Bank, Poppy. You know what I mean? It's never it's not build a wall and separate this Palestinian farmer from his land. Or two million from each other in a cage. You know, so I just knew that they were misrepresenting Judaism. And it's important to me to point that out to everybody. Yeah, I think it's really, really critical because you're in a way, I mean, you're defending your faith, right? You're defending your faith from people who are purporting to speak on its behalf and who are who are alleging that, you know, their actions are supported by your faith and are endorsed by your faith and and you know, they're doing it in your name. And so you're saying very, you know, logically that you're not going to do this in my name. And as a Jewish American, I'm doubly responsible, Yes. right? I feel the double duty to speak out about where my taxes are going, right? My taxes are being used to fund oppression. And as a Jew, how my religion is being used to displace and murder Palestinian people. And I'm very against both of those things. And I think that that's a reasonable position, honestly. I think it's very reasonable. Yeah. I would I would encourage anybody else to try and push back on that. You know what I mean? From what angle are you going to tell me it's okay to murder and displace Palestinian people? Because it's not the Torah. Don't bring it up to me. I, I'm, I'm in. You know, <laughs> and also <laughs> even if even if you even if you interpret the Bible literally, which makes you a religious fanatic, by the way, God is not a landlord. Yeah. Bible's not a lease. It's right. not a legal document. Your argument does not hold up in court or in the court of morals. Court of morals. <laughs> yeah, the jury the has court. returned. The a jury decision. has returned with a verdict. <laughs> And uh, guess what, Poppy? It ain't looking good for y'all. Yeah. Guilty by the jury of the Court of Morals. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and you can come see the Court of Moral Appeal if you want, but we got the same judges. Same judges. <laughs> We're I mean? an authoritarian court. Yeah. So isn't that, isn't that weird? Isn't that familiar for you? <laughs> one one like, quick thing. Um, people are like, oh, Jews can't colonize uh, Palestine because Jews are indigenous. If it's not colonization, why did y'all run up with guns and bulldozers? Secondly, even if Jews are native, which not all are, some Jews are native, some Jews are not, uh, even if they were native, you can still colonize because you are a foreign occupation to the existing indigenous population. So based on the definition of colonization, you fit that characteristic. But like you say, even if you're native, 
and some are native. What do you mean by some are native? Are you referring to the Palestinian Jews that I was Palestinian Jews? Palestinian yes. Jews. You're not there referring are some... to people in Europe because um, this is no, what no. they're telling me. They're telling no, no, me, no, no, yeah, no. they're they're in Europe, but if you look at their DNA, then their DNA shows. Hey, you know who was super interested in the bloodline of Jews? Nazis. When I say there are some Jews who are native to Palestine, I'm talking about Palestinian Jews. I'm talking about Mizrahi Jews. There were some Jews that stayed yes. in Palestine. Yes. For the entirety of the time. Right. Yes. 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 Um, that's and, what I'm talking and about. And many of them were anti-Zionist because uh, they, a lot of them. Yes. <laughs> because they and many, saw... are, many still are right. Some yes. of the most religious groups, uh, the Haredi, the community, um, you know, just the Orthodox community in general largely has a lot of anti-Zionism running through it. Yes. And that's because they, you know, are fundamentally committed to the faith of Judaism, which does not at all say take up arms and steal land. People will be like, oh, you know, Michael's not like a real Jew Jew. And it's like, hey, do you know that the real Jew Jews are being hosed down in the streets of Jerusalem for opposing Zionism right now? Know that? It's like they're trying to get civil rights out there. What are you talking about? We used to see a lot of Orthodox Jews. And then there were Jews from a movement called the Natura Kartai. Kartai. Are they also Orthodox? Those are Orthodox Jews. Yeah. Those are Orthodox. Yes. They come out and they're very anti-Zionist and they're always supporting Palestinians. Fiercely anti-Zionist. Fiercely anti-Zionist. Jewish. And Jewish. And very Jewish, might I add. Very Jewish. The people who try and say that they are not Jewish, like y'all are anti-Semitic. That's insane. If, If they're not Jewish, nobody's Jewish. Right. Thank you so much for listening to the Palestine Pod. My name is Mikey B. This is Laura E. And this concludes our first episode. We'll see you next time. Palestine Pod. Palestine Pod. Palestine Pod. Palestine Pod.